Well, last week we camped in the very first verse of Mark's gospel. Uh, we began a, a new series and going through the gospel of Mark. We're not going to hit every verse. We're not going to hit every portion of scripture in there, but we are going to try to attempt to get to every chapter in some way and uh, touch upon that. But last week we asked ourselves this question, are we more like a cruise ship or an aircraft carrier? And I trust that, again, we are moving forward and being that aircraft carrier, everyone on deck working as God gifts you, has gifted you in that way, and we work together as one body moving forward for the Lord. But our focus today is on two individuals, John and Jesus. And they were, they were cousins and both had great birth stories, but they were certainly not equal. John MacArthur imagines a conversation that may, may have taken place when the moms got together. Mary says to Elizabeth, so how's your boy? Elizabeth might respond, odd, really odd. You know, he's, he's lived his whole life apart from us. He lives out in the desert. How's your boy? And then, to which Mary likely said, well, you know, he's perfect. (laughs) Probably a conversation stopper right there. But John answered the question, who's first with the Savior? And loved, uh, loved to point others to put their faith in Jesus Christ. We'll look first, though, in, in, our, in our discovery here in, in chapter 1. We're going to look at the first, uh, well, chapter 2, uh, I mean, excuse me, verse 2 through verse 11, basically the first 11 verses. We're going to look first at John the Baptist in verses 2 through 8, and then we'll look at Jesus in the last uh, few verses there, 9 through 11. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel, with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there are three different jobs identified here in this portion of Scripture, right there in the words, John the preparer in verses 2 and 3, John the proclaimer in verses 4 and 5, and then John the preacher in verses 6 through 8. So I'm going to focus on those three things for John the Baptist. And so let's look at verses 2 and 3 first and see John the preparer. His first job was to prepare the way for Jesus. And Mark tells us in verse 2 that Isaiah predicted exactly what John would do. The phrase, it is written, is indicating a continuous result. What what follows are quotes from Malachi chapter 3 and also Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, will prepare your way. 
who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John is God's messenger sent to come before your face, which literally means in the presence or in front of your eyes. And even though John ministered in the wilderness, he was highly visible to many people before their face as well. And his message was also very audible, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm sure he raised his voice pretty loud to get people's attention and let them know. But we read, we, we read that he came to prepare the way of the Lord. In ancient times, when a king would travel somewhere, his advanced team would go on ahead to make sure the roads were passable. Preparing the way meant to level out the roads and to reduce twists and turns. They functioned much like civil engineers, fixing highways and even constructing bridges so the king would have no delays when he came to town. When President Obama came and visited the, the Portland area, the airport was prepared for Air Force One. All things were shut down, air traffic and everything else. The roads were shut down along the president's route for, for security reasons, of course. And his, his security detail would go ahead of him to prepare the way for the president. And he did manage an impromptu visit to a deli, a little diner there he stopped at in northeast Portland, probably threw the security into a frenzy. <laughs> what are you doing? Don't, don't do this. We didn't prepare for this. But John the Baptist was like the security detail of the president going on before. He didn't, he didn't want anything in the way of the one who is, who is the way, the truth, and the life. John would also announce to the people that the king was coming, so they better get ready to meet him. The word wilderness refers to the, the rolling badlands that speak of in the Bible that made up a, a desolate area of barren, chalky soil covered with pebbles and, and broken stones and rocks. Seems like a pretty good metaphor for the barren hearts of people. Those of you and me, when, John, when John's job was to prepare hard-hearted people for Jesus the King. And God's got a job for you as well, too, to prepare the way. Those who are hard-hearted before us to make the, the, the way passable for them to meet Jesus. And then we see John as the proclaimer. Verses 4 and 5, John prepared and he also proclaimed in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the word baptizing refers to immersion. A person would be immersed in the water. The, 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 the idea is to, to go totally under the water, not holding anything back. At that time, Jewish people would use water for purification and even had baths called mikvahs. But baptism was reserved for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And it's interesting that these Israelites had to go out into the wilderness to be baptized. And no doubt they would have been reminded of their history when they were walking out there, when their ancestors wandered in the desert, in the desert wilderness for 40 years due to their disobedience. But there were two primary points to John's proclamation. One was repentance from sin. And that word repentance means a change of mind that results in a change of action. 
a change of mind that results in a change of action. To repent means to be going in one direction and then turning around and going in a new direction. I've heard some people say, he's done a 360, and I think, that's not quite right. But a 180 would be more appropriate, going in the opposite direction of where you were going, going towards Jesus and what God has for you. Repentance must always be proclaimed with the gospel, always. Too often, Jesus is presented as kind of an add-on to our lives. You have your life going on, and, and then you can also have Jesus with you as well, too. And as a result, we have more fans than true followers. And it seems like we need more emphasis on repentance today to battle a, a watered-down Christianity with no demands and no discipleship. We need those demands. We need the, the discipleship to grow in Christ. People need to hear the truth about sin and also righteousness and judgment so that they, they will repent and experience the forgiveness of sins and be ready for the return of Christ. We must be on guard because 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I've never been one to shy away from truth as far as when Scripture is concerned and preaching it from the, gospel, from the pulpit here of the gospel. I've always had a little wincing going on because I'm a peacemaker. I don't want to cause any problems or issues. But when it comes to God's word and his truth, that's most important. No matter how many toes are being stepped upon. Because uh, sin and repentance is important. So repentance from sin is the important key in all of this. Remission of sin is another thing that uh, John was proclaiming. The word forgiveness means to be released or to have, a, have your sins remitted as if they had never happened. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 puts repentance and remission together. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So it goes hand in hand. And, and please understand that people were not baptized to have their sins forgiven. They were baptized because they had repented and received forgiveness of sin. Baptism is, is an incredible picture of a person dying to the life of sin and then rising again to a new life. Baptism always follows uh, belief as the New Testament shows us. And if you've been delivered through the new birth, it's time for you to be baptized. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you have not been baptized, it is time. Baptism is a step of obedience. And it's also a public declaration that you belong to Jesus Christ. The main idea is one of identification. So if you want to talk more about that, about baptism, about getting baptized, please talk to me. We need to have uh, pie and coffee, right? <laughs> and, and talk about that. Now, verse 5, though, tells us that John was baptizing multitudes of people. It says, and all, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. 
That word all refers to everyone living in Judea and Jerusalem. And that's a lot of people. The phrase, we're going, we're, we're going out to, to him, means there was a continuous, steady stream of people coming on out to meet with him. Can you imagine walking 20 miles, because that's the distance from Jerusalem to, to the Jordan, to be baptized? 20 miles. That's like walking from here to Malala, or walking from here to Hillsboro, or walking from here to Battleground, Washington. I know, we, we took a bike ride out there to Battleground, Washington, and that was tough enough. <laughs> but the Jordan River was not this mighty river like the Columbia. It was more of the uh, Johnson Creek version, a smaller one. The Jordan is only about 10 feet at its deepest and 100 feet across at its widest. We know from John chapter 3, verse 23, that John did his baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. I suppose John wanted to find a place where he could totally submerge those being, being baptized. But the Jordan had spiritual significance to people. It was associated with deliverance because Joshua led the people across it. And as they headed to the, to the land of promise, and people went from the wilderness, which was associated with the death, and through the Jordan, which represented deliverance. One commentator estimates that as many as 300,000 people were baptized by John and also his disciples too over the course of many months. It's amazing because John treated the Jews like they were Gentiles. They were, he was confronting them with their sins so that they would repent and experience forgiveness. You look at that last phrase in verse 5, they came confessing their sins. That was one thing that I, I uh, remember through evangelism explosion training, that you never assume where someone is at spiritually. And you give them opportunity to hear the gospel. Because maybe some point in their life, they never got it. Maybe some point in their life, they never heard of that. They just went to church. That's that, that was the thing to do. But as we shared and, and witnessed to people, it was always never assumed that, oh, this person's a Christian, we're just going to go on our way. It was always good to present the gospel in some way. And I remember also, too, back at Labish Center, was when we began a lot of that going on in the training, we also decided to go out among the church family and, and witness in that way, go visiting each of them. And it was a good time to, to visit and call on people. But it's also a good time to share the gospel just in case maybe someone didn't know. And there were some people in the congregation of, of Labish Center. They had never heard that before as far as they never had that opportunity or they never took that opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior. They just had been going to church. So John was out there doing the same and he was not playing any favorites. <laughs> he was letting everyone know that they needed to confess their sins and be baptized. So John prepared people. He proclaimed repentance and forgiveness. And then he was also, third job, a preacher. Let's look at his manner and his message of preaching. John was unusual in the way he looked, <laughs> to say the least, and what he ate. Notice his outfit in verse 6. Now John came with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. 
So his clothing was, was, was as rough as his message. <laughs> and in the tradition of prophets like Elijah, John stepped out of the wilderness looking a bit like a wild man. We know from Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that he was a Nazarite, meaning that his hair and his beard had never been trimmed. <laughs> Probably looked like one of the guys from Duck Dynasty, I imagine. But Camel's hair was rough, and his leather belt held it all together. His clothing was certainly not fashionable, and for his food, he ate locusts and wild honey. And this is exactly what someone dwelling in the desert would eat. Bees made hives in the rocks, and according to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 21, locusts were on God's approved menu. And this might be, uh, this might be the menu for you if you're looking for a new diet. Because locusts provided protein, and honey has the carbs that we need. Any takers? Anybody? Honey and locusts? No? Okay. But he certainly stood out. We were talking about that in disciples in the Sunday school class about discipleship, how we need to stand out as we commit to the Lord. I don't know if we need to walk around in camel's hair and eat locusts, but uh, um, we do need to stand out because we love God so much. And then there was his message. In verse 7, it summarizes his sermon. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John called people to repentance. But the heart of his message was Jesus. Compared to Christ, he knew he was nothing. In that culture, the, the removing of sandals was a job for the lowest slave. Hebrew slaves weren't allowed to do it. Roads were covered in dust and dirt and often flowed with raw sewage, making feet really, really dirty. And John is saying that he is lower than the lowest servant, not worthy to, to, to do even what they do. In essence, he's saying, I am nothing, but he is everything. You will never see the worthiness of Jesus unless you first see your unworthiness. Because our pride gets in the way. You won't be saved until you first settle the fact that you are a sinner and need saving. This is pretty incredible because Jesus thought highly of John, saying in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And John thought of himself as the littlest and the least and the last. And that's, that's what made him great. And in verse 8 shows us that John understood that Christ was number one. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was using water to signify life change. Jesus brings life change through the Holy Spirit. Going under water signified cleansing, but people can only have their sins washed through the blood of Jesus. Water might clean the outside, but the whole, only the Holy Spirit can cleanse us on the inside. Then in verses 9 and 11, we notice that Jesus comes on the scene with no fanfare or huge announcement, he simply just shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized by John. 
And this is his first appearance since he was seen in the temple at the age of 12. You look at verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized? You think about that? He certainly didn't need to repent or confess his sins. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John tried to prevent Jesus from being baptized. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus gives us the answer in verse 15. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus was baptized to identify with us. God the Father put our sins on him, and his righteousness was put on us, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus did absolutely everything that the Father required. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. His baptism also shows his willingness to accept the mission given by his father. He was go forward in this and be baptized. The Levitical law required all priests to be consecrated when they were around 30 years of age. And through a twofold process of washing and then anointing. So when Jesus was washed or baptized in the Jordan, the heavens were opened and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. We see this in Mark chapter 1 verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now the Greek word which describes the heavens being torn open means to set asunder or divide or to rend or to split. It is used only one other time in Mark chapter 15 verse 38 to describe that thick curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom. This curtain kept people from getting close dividing the holy place from the most holy place. Amazingly, the way is now open for us to come right into the presence of God. In Isaiah chapter, uh, Isaiah 64, verse, verse 1, it contains the cry repeated over the centuries as people long for God to come down. That verse says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And in Psalm 144, verse 5, says something very similar. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. I'm sure glad that Christ has come down. And now, after 400 years of silence from above, broken first, of course, about 30 years earlier when an angel appeared to Zechariah, John's father, the heavens are ripped open after Jesus is baptized, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Tim Keller, an author, points out that Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And this verb means to flutter. The rabbis translate it to this way. The Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. So seeing the dove descend would, would have certainly gotten their attention because God was about to initiate a new creation. When the heavens rip open, you might expect something pretty crazy was about to happen, but instead the Holy Spirit comes down 
and like a dove. Doves are gentle birds that, des that descend delicately and rest in their place. A dove has no talons and is loyal to its mate. Doves also mourn when death comes and feel the distress of the hurting. When the Holy Spirit comes down, we see another fulfillment of Scripture. This time from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And have you also noticed too in, in this in, in chapter uh, chapter one of Mark that all three members of the Trinity are present there at that baptism of Jesus? We we serve one God external externally and existent in three persons. The Son physically comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends visibly, and the Father speaks audibly in verse eleven, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. When God speaks, it's all about his son. He's not angry, not upset, but instead he's delighted. So how do we apply this, uh, this amazing passage to our lives? There are four ways I believe we can apply it. Four ways that I believe kind of covers everything. <laughs> First, we need to repent and receive forgiveness of our sins. Repent and receive forgiveness of your sins. Heaven is open to you. Heaven is available. The way has been made straight and clear. It's time to repent and have your sins forgiven. If you're joining us online and you haven't taken that step, but you've heard a lot about Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you. And you're only a prayer away. Only a prayer away. Another application to this passage is that if you are a born-again believer, your next step is baptism, if you haven't taken that step yet. Baptism is a step of obedience, an outward sign of an inward change. What happens in us, we express in that way, and we let other people know God is doing something special. There's a new creation here. If you haven't been baptized, don't put it off any longer. Again, let's talk if you need to do that. A third application in this passage of Scripture, consciously and continually ask yourself, who's first? Who's first? The title of this sermon is just that, Who's First? And John settled this because he was in submission to the Savior. Are you like John in this regard? Or, or are you more like another guy named Diotrephes? <laughs> he's a guy we find in uh, 3 John chapter 9, and he's described as Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Are we like John in this regard, or do we have a little, uh, a little virus of diatrophies in us that needs to be taken care of by our Savior? Who's first in your life? See, either, either Jesus is first, or you are. There's really no middle ground. 
it can't be both of you. There's no room in that driver's seat for the both of you. It's either Jesus or you. But consciously and continually ask yourself, who's first? And finally, fourth application to this passage, be a person of peace that prepares the way. Be a person of peace that prepares the way. Think of one person, just one person, you'll talk to this week in order to prepare the way for them to meet Jesus. See your conversations as ways to remove obstacles and to clear the path for people to see Jesus. See, our purpose is to point people to Christ. See yourself as a messenger before Christ comes to them. You are part of the the advanced team. So who's that one person you will talk to this week in preparing the way? Search and rescue teams find those who have been lost. You know, the mountains or in the woods, something like that. They have to be trained how to search effectively. For instance, part of the training of one search and rescue team has the team search some woods and find items that had been hidden there. So they got to be observant of those things going on. For those who are not trained, only about 25% of the items are recovered. But for those trained, over 80% are found. The key is to lay the search field out in a grid and have searchers move very slowly. When they get to a certain distance, they make a 360-degree turn. They look up, they're looking around, and they're also looking down. With that kind of attention, they're able to find what is lost. And if you think further about this concept, each of us live in a grid called neighborhoods. As we move slowly through those neighborhoods, turning around to look up, look around, and and look down, we will see the lost around us and be able to be used by God to find them, to be that person of peace that prepares the way. And as we stay humble and care only that Christ gets the credit, we will see the lost be found. So who's first? I trust Jesus is in your life. Jesus, the name above all names, the one who goes before us, the one who deserves all the glory. In our lives, I trust that Jesus is first in your life. Just as John the Baptist showed, he was not the one, Jesus, who's coming. He's the one you need to pay attention to. And as you take time then in sharing with those around you, in your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever you're at, that you're able to let them know that the one who wants a relationship with you is Jesus, and he's the one who calls your name. He's the one who has opened up heaven for us. You prepare the way for them to meet Jesus. And it might not be you who might tell tell them about it. It might just be you preparing the way and someone else comes and is able to harvest. But we all need to be faithful of what God has for us. And right now, I trust that you realize we need to be those people of peace to be able to prepare the way for those around us to meet Jesus. 
I trust that you have someone in mind that you might, you might be able to talk to this week. Anyway, I'm going to have Annie come on up. I think Julie's going to join in on this as well, too. Ron's going to help me and Jake as well. I'm going to share in the last few songs. And as these songs are sung, I trust they can draw your attention to Jesus, who is above everything. <laughs> He needs to be first place. He needs to be first place in your life. He needs to be first place in all that you do and all that you say and all that you desire. It's when that happens and all other things just fall right into place. Keep Jesus first and realize all the great things that will come about that.